Hey folks, it's Jeff here. Just wanted to say a big hello to all of you who are part of our online podcast community. You need to know that though we may not see you on Sundays, you are such a valuable and cherished part of our community, as much as any in-person community. I'm, I'm guessing that you're tuning in because you're finding value in what we're doing in our weekly Sunday messages and Maybe you're cultivating a spirituality that you're finding is inspiring you and equipping you to take water to your world. That right there would be exactly what we're hoping is happening for you. Look, over the past month, we've been asking our in-person community to consider making a one-time donation before the end of the year. The truth is our projected general donations were lower than expected this year. We've kept our expectations expenses below budget, but we're forecasting a shortfall by the end of the year. So we're hoping right now to be able to raise enough money before year end to erase the loss. And I'm wondering if you would consider helping us as well. Honestly, any amount would be greatly appreciated. All you'd have to do is go to friendschurch.ca forward slash donate and give to our general fund. That would be so appreciated. You know, I've noticed as some people have gone and done this, they've been signing up as well for pre-authorized giving, which is just an automated form of donating, usually on a monthly basis. Rather than just giving a one-time amount, they kind of commit over a longer term. This is huge for us as a community just because it helps us more accurately predict our income for the coming year as we set our budgets. Yeah, we're in budget season right now. And we don't want to have to keep coming back year after year at the end of the year to clean this up. So that's why I'm reaching out. Whether you can give a one-time or you can sign up monthly, maybe you're listening to this and you can't afford to do anything right now. I just want you to know that we care about you. We're thrilled that the Ministry of Friends Church is helping you in some way. Maybe it's helping loved ones of yours too. I don't know. But regardless of whether you can support us financially right now or not, you just need to know we're grateful. We're grateful for you. So, hey, enjoy today's message. Okay, while I'm doing this, maybe I'll just tell you a story. Um, We were in the middle of the pandemic, uh, I don't know, a few months. No, we were ways in. We were about almost... Nine months in, there had been a lot of talk about the vaccine, and uh, it was being rolled out slowly, and uh, I was chatting with extended family member, and this person told me that they weren't getting the vaccine. Elder, elderly, um, like in, in, in their mid later 70s and i remember on the on the phone i was kind of dumbstruck by it at the time i had probably like many of you been watching the news almost on the regular it was like it was non-stop streaming and we'd flip from one channel to the next to the next trying to understand better what was going on and what this pandemic would mean There was a sense of stress and dread, worrying about where it was leading. 
And so here I have this extended family member telling me that they're not going to get the vaccine. And I just, I, I, I said, you, don't do that. You, you, need, you need to do this. You're in what they would call the high-risk category. I was just regurgitating everything that I had heard, but I was doing everything I could to talk this person into it. Wasn't having it. And this person began sharing some of their concerns, um, to which I categorically, I, I, I let her talk for a little bit, obviously, but I was just like, you don't understand. And a half an hour later, we got nowhere. She, she was quoting her sources and whatever. I'm looking at, I, I'm saying, look it. The best mex- experts in the world are saying this thing needs to go down this way. And, this was, and, and uh, you know, you think you're smarter than this? The thing got heated. And we got nowhere. I hung up the phone. Over the next couple of days, I began chatting with other family members. They're like going, hey, did you talk any sense into that person? I'm like, no. They're like, well, you know what? They're going to get what they deserve then. I'm like, whatever that meant, right? At that point, though, there was just a level of frustration and anger. How many know, how many were involved in any of these kinds of conversations with anyone over? Okay, so, all right. You know what it feels like. So I, I'm just like, hmm. Christmas rolls around. They're talking about coming and visiting. We're going, look at, there's these lockdown things. And you not being vaccinated, don't think that's a great idea. But there's grandkids involved. There's all kinds of different things happening here. And you can tell the tension's building. It's like there's levels of isolation, loneliness. I'm, oh, just tricky, right? But I remember through that season, every time I would think about this extended family member, there was a level of righteous indignation that I felt. I felt I knew best, and I felt like this person was sadly misinformed, and someone had woven their voodoo power over this person, uh, whatever, and had them hypnotized to believe in certain things. And I, I just kind of wrote that person off for a while. Maybe you're here this morning and you've had these kinds of experiences, or maybe there's still those people that fall into that category. Well, this person's a part of the family. And over the last while, I have to admit, though in the middle of all that, there is this frustration. I mean, I'm looking at this person with um, just a sense of someone's need to educating uh, needs to educate you. I got to this point where all of a sudden, and I don't know when or how, but I just started hearing little bits of information starting to pop into my newsfeed stories, people I was talking to that started complicating my feelings, my beliefs, my understanding of the full picture. Just start getting murky. At one point, it just seemed very clear, very black and white. Then it started getting complicated. 
And I could go into all the complications, but I think we're going to get there today. I think I got to this point where I was going, maybe there is some stuff that isn't quite as black and white as I thought, not quite as open and shut as I thought. I didn't want to come right out and say it, but I was like, well, maybe she had a point on this. So anyways, there we were. We're still trying to sort a lot of stuff through, and we've had a lot of conversations since. And actually, now that the, the pandemic is almost in our peripheral, it's almost in our rearview mirror, uh, and the dust is starting to settle a little bit, I have to admit, I have more questions than answers. This morning, we thought it would be a good idea to tackle this whole area as a part of this Disagreeing Beautifully series. Because we thought, man, if there has been any topic that has been disagreed on more (laughs) than the pandemic over the last few, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But if we can't figure out how to talk about this stuff in an open way, I think everything we're talking about is a bit of a joke. We've got to be able to tackle this one in a respectful way. I thought about who, did, who I could invite to speak to this. I knew if I, could, if I got a real extreme person with real extreme views on one side, it would piss off everyone on the other that would fall on the opposite side. But meanwhile, everyone that was on the right side would be going, here, 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 here. So I, I, I thought, no, that one. we need to find someone who's kind of in the middle, who's a little bit empathetic or a lot empathetic, on both sides. Who's capable of pissing off everyone in the room? <laughs> and I found the person. <laughs> Nina, would you come? I wanted to introduce you to Nina Lewis Larson. Um, Nina, while you're coming up here, uh, Nina is a naturopathic doctor. She practices functional medicine. Would that be how I did that? Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, Nina um, is a part of our community here. And we had a conversation a while back, and I just, the things that I heard from her were, there were different things that Mm -hmm. you shared with me at the time that I thought, ooh, you are coming at this from a unique lens. And um, so I thought, oh, you'd be good. Thank you. Can you welcome Nina as she (laughs) kind of puts herself out there this morning? Good morning. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Nina, you told me right at the forefront. You said, look, it, I'm a naturopathic doctor. Just so you know, you can expect some pushback. There's going to be people in the room that are going to go, oh, here we go. Can you explain a little bit about your unique perspective on healthcare, m- m- your medical profession, how you approach things, just to kind of give people an idea of kind of how, uh, yeah, how, your, your gateway into this world? Yeah, for sure. So I was really fortunate that in my medical training, I'm an American-trained naturopathic doctor, that we were trained as primary care practitioners. And so my base training was very similar to any MD. We prescribe drugs, we deliver babies, I do minor surgery in my office. But we had the opportunity in medical school to also learn a lot about nutrition, about botanical medicine, about lifestyle and stress reduction techniques, hormone balancing, things that kind of completed the picture for me in medicine. So it wasn't just 
solely a pharmaceutical-driven model. Now, I'll use a drug when I need to use a drug, but my goal is to see what else we can do for a person that might lower that drug, or maybe they don't need that drug. Maybe we can use a different method of treatment that may have less side effects. So I've always sort of been in both worlds of being okay, obviously, with the conventional paradigm when it's needed. There's a time and a place, but also looking at what else is possibly out there for a medical intervention or treatment. When you heard that COVID-19 was a thing, Mm -hmm. you probably, I don't know how you find that stuff out within the medical field, if Mm -hmm. there's email that go out before the news cycles or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, Heads up. Heads up, doctors. I don't know how that works. (laughs) What were your initial reactions to everything? What, What was rolling through your head? Yeah, I mean, I think like all of us, I mean, nobody goes into healthcare without this immense goal of wanting to help and wanting to preserve health and wanting to do everything we can to keep people alive, living a beautiful life. And so when you start hearing about an airborne virus that uh, is extremely contagious and concerning, especially to a certain group of people, you know, obviously initially it's do everything that public health is saying to do to make sure that we're not seeing what we all saw, you know, in Italy and New York, what, what those scenes to not bring that to our home as well. Mm-hmm. Were you, um, at the time when everything was being rolled out, was there kind of a, a falling in line with all the different health authorities in terms of what they were speaking? Was there a unified kind of a belief system that you saw across the medical field, everyone was just kind of saying, all right, they're recommending this, let's do this, and moving on? Yeah, I I would say so. I I think it didn't matter where your medical background came from, your training came from. It was really, we all need to practice basic guidelines to keep everybody safe. And I think we all did agree, initially at least, as, as to what those implications had to be, though they were hard, right, of distancing people, of... Uh, protective personal equipment, everything that we felt would at least reduce the burden on the public of an infection. Mm-hmm. Was there a point where what you were being instructed to do and how they were describing this thing was all going to play out began to differ with what you were observing or where the 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 right answers weren't necessarily, um, it was making things tricky Mm. for you to address what you were seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think that the further we got into the lockdowns, it became apparent that while there was absolute benefit, I believe, for a certain group of people, there was unfortunately also harm being done, done inadvertently. I don't think any of us understood the negative consequences. Now, of course, we can look back and and see, and I'll share a few stories. I mean, I think I was fortunate that I kept my doors open once we were all, you know, legal to get back to work, which was pretty quick for us healthcare workers. And so I was able to see beyond my little circle of friends and family and what maybe we were thinking was the best course of action to start see people from different walks of life and how they were experiencing these initial months of the pandemic. Yeah, like as we chatted, you 
you shared with me a number of different ways, like impacts Mm -hmm. of the pandemic, the lockdown, whatever, on people's health. And not just COVID attacking the body, Mm -hmm. the lungs or whatever, but there were a broad spectrum of impacts that this pandemic was having on people Mm-hmm. as a doctor watching all that stuff. Like, could you share some of the things that you were watching that were going, this is, al- or this is concerning, this is alarming? Yeah, I mean, I think best to share through story than throw a whole bunch of statistics out. And so I kind of picked four stories that maybe represent a diverse experience uh, to share. And so one I'd like to start with was a 20-year-old male that came into me probably, oh, I don't know, seven or eight months into the pandemic. And this young man was really into weightlifting. That was his outlet. And for any of you that have read the research on exercise, you know that it often outperforms pharmaceuticals and its ability to help with anxiety, depression. So when this was taken away from this young man, he fell into a pretty deep depression And his family was quite worried about COVID, so they really, they had him home, they had him isolated, and he couldn't work out. And so he began to deteriorate quite quickly. Um, He became suicidal. And unfortunately, at that time, we were at about a 15-month wait for psychiatry referral. So this is tough, right? You have this young man that needs socialization. He needs a gym for his mental well-being. We can't get him into a specialist. And at one point he looked at me and he said, Doc, I don't understand why our world is valuing one group and my life has been deemed less important. Hmm. That's tough, right? That's tough. Yeah. And so... um, Yeah, like it was interesting as I was chatting with you, you mm -hmm. began flagging like outside of just the COVID casualties mm-hmm. or the actual virus casualties mm-hmm. these what would feel like loosely connected but very connected mm-hmm. um, casualties as well just in different ways mm-hmm. so you have the young guy mm-hmm. uh, what else did you watch yeah I kind of term it like the COVID collateral damage, right? It wasn't just the virus itself, which caused immense problems in itself, um, but everything else that kind of fell. Um, On the other side, I have a good friend who's a lead RN at an assisted living facility. And, you know, she would call me very frustrated because people were maybe not always adhering to the guidelines. And she had a population that was very high risk. And so, you know, she had to take crazy precautions. You know, she explains to me she's in her garage changing her clothes, putting it in a plastic bag, getting that right into the washing machine so that she wasn't at risk of, she had teenage kids, you know, moving this virus for fear of harming some of her her patients. Um, And so, uh, you know, in her eyes, really, it was more about how, what else can we do to protect these very vulnerable people that she loved dearly in in her community? You could feel... For her too, mm-hmm. going look at people much. that aren't taking the virus seriously. She's watching vulnerable sector of the population dropping like flies. That's right. Yeah, lots of sympathy there and empathy for them too. Yeah, hmm. yeah. So, in another perspective, we have 
parents. Um, those of you, we have a young child at home, and for those of you that had to go through this with young children, this was a totally different set of struggles. Um, we know a lot of people had to work from home, you know, side by side with little kids running around trying to homeschool, if you were able to do that, uh, with our general health habits going down. I mean, our drinking went up, domestic violence went up, our general ability to handle stress went down. So you've now got, you know, family systems breaking down under the pressures of trying to comply with these guidelines. So also very tricky. We also know that because of the dopamine change that happens in little kids' brains, when we put them on screens all day, they are more at risk for addictive behaviors when they grow up. They are more at risk of emotional irregularity in the current time. So now we've got these young kids who are having significant mental impacts, and again, probably more than we even understand at this point. You shared some scary stats mm -hmm. uh, just about how that was affecting young people. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember, um, was it the level of depression that was moving in on kids uh, mm -hmm. or the level of damage that they were encountering mm -hmm. prior to COVID and after? Yeah, so it was a startling fact, and again, we didn't know then always. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but um, our child and adolescent mortality rates are up by 20% right now. Mortality rates. That's right. 20% since when? From between 2019 and 2021. We haven't seen that rise in over 50 years. This is unbelievable what's happening to our youth. And so uh, as soon as you said mortality rates, I was mm -hmm. like, uh, instantly I was thinking... Wow, COVID took out 20% more kids yeah. in that, but you... It's not COVID at all. And I think a lot of people, yeah, it was hard in the media to really suss out what was real, but COVID really doesn't negatively affect most children. The death rate for children is extremely small. They are not a population really at risk, um, if they're healthy, I should say. Um, but these were unfortunately nothing to do with infection. This was overdose, suicide, and homicide is how these children have died. So were we choosing one group over another? This is tough. These are tough questions. Yeah. These are tough questions. Yeah. If, if uh, I know in the middle of it all, for me, the right answer was just lock down, keep everyone separate, yeah. no matter what. But then I start wrestling with some of these kinds of stories and you start realizing that, yeah, perhaps while we're trying to protect one vulnerable community in the kind of the universal solution, mm -hmm. we are exposing other people through different kinds of poisons yeah. that are creating incredible challenges. And we're, we're not even aware, they're maybe not talking about them in the community. Mm -hmm. I know as, as you began sharing these stories, was there another example that you had of, of a complexity? Yeah, I think what, you know, one other I just want to share, and again, just to see how diverse it was and how much in my office that suffering came from all angles, even in opposite directions, right? People that really probably needed more room in their social circle and people that didn't. And, and the last example was a patient of mine who uh, is a cancer patient, 
going through chemo, had struggled with eating her whole life, so she was diabetic and obese and hypertensive, these risk factors that are very, very real for having a COVID death. And for her, she really did need protection. Uh, without a vaccine, likely she would have died if she got COVID. So that's the other side, mm -hmm. you know, is how do you on one hand say people need more space, on the other hand saying if we don't protect certain people, I don't know if they're going to make it through. I, you know, as soon as you, at least for me, as soon as I start wrestling with some of these things, I, I've had those conversations with people who said, if they lock down again, I ain't doing it. How many have heard that maybe? Maybe you've said it. And you went, uh, yeah, we're not going back there. Or I'm not doing that to my kids or whatever. And I know there have been times where I've, I've looked at them and I went, don't be so selfish. That's, that was honestly what was coming through me because I'm thinking of example number four. Hmm. But then as soon as I start thinking about these parents with young children, I think about the kids that are being affected by these. Like now it's like... That's tricky. Mm -hmm. Tricky. Mm -hmm. Were there times when you were sitting there with these patients, struggling to know really what to tell them or what the right line? Where did you ever struggle to try to maintain the party line? For sure. I know. Even as I chatted with you about coming up here to do this today, you were nervous about even committing to it because you're going. Look at even me coming up and sharing publicly, if I don't share certain things in a certain way or whatever, I put myself in jeopardy um, because you might not toe a certain line and be subject to consequence. Yeah. I mean, it's our responsibility as doctors, healthcare workers, that we explain benefits of risk of any treatment. It doesn't matter what that is. Any intervention, it could be exercise. You know, you need to know if you do this wrong, you might pull your back, right? You need to know benefits and risks. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that it was absolutely tricky to obviously still need to support public guidelines, but start understanding for me that it was going to harm some people and save, and save others. And so trying to find ways to support those that were being harmed from it while still maintaining guidelines. You know, luckily there was things that came online and there was ways to help people socialize a little bit better, but it was not easy. Mm -hmm. All right, so it's complicated dealing with what the right solution is when you got everyone locked down. Yeah. Let's talk about another hot button, and that would be the vaccines. Because mm -hmm. um, I know with this family member, she said, I don't trust it, Jeff. I don't know that they've taken enough time and that all the agendas are at play that they're really being honest with us about this. Which I, right off the hop, said, you think you're smarter than the ex? <laughs> uh, but now in hindsight, I've just heard stories mm -hmm. of people being hurt. Mm -hmm. I was just in a home this week, Friday, speaking to a woman who lost her husband healthy. He's a, a tradesperson, very active has a very active lifestyle, is out there working every day on the tools. 
gets the vaccine, first vaccine, and nothing going on too much, but then a month later gets the booster, and all of a sudden his arm stops responding the way it was supposed to. And it was just right after the booster. And so they're like, whoa, what's going on here? They go in, start, and things start really going sideways. And within about a five-week period, he died. And I'm sitting with this woman who is looking at it going, don't try to tell me that thing didn't do something to my husband. I watched it with my own eyes. Now, I've had numerous stories like that, but maybe you could kind of share from your perspective of vaccines. You shared some stuff with me that maybe just, it just complicated things for me. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some stuff that most people, do, or what, some things about vaccines that, most, that are, they aren't necessarily saying too much about that are maybe misunderstood a lot about vaccines? Yeah, so I think, you know, something that became apparent to me was the rhetoric around a little bit that if you get this vaccine, you're going to be okay and you're safe. And if you don't, not only might you die, you're going to spread it to everybody else. And I want to put it out there that that is not how this vaccine works at all. This vaccine is actually quite good if you are high risk, okay, and that means you know, your classic metabolic triad. So diabetic, high blood pressure, overweight, dementia, these categories of people don't do well with COVID and they absolutely can die from COVID. And so this is a group where I really encourage them to get vaccinated. I, the data is very clear. It reduces their risk about 60%. That's significant in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Medicine, we're never perfect. It's never perfect. There's a lot of gray, but for me, a 60% reduction all day long. There's definitely a group who have been and will continue, unfortunately, to be harmed from the vaccine too. And so sometimes it's a crapshoot, right? We have to say, look, if I have a lot of risk factors, yes, there's a piece where I could get harmed, but probably benefits outweigh the risk. Um, Within the first few weeks, I actually saw both of these categories of people in my clinic. And so there was a gentleman who I'd actually really encouraged to get vaccinated because he had all those risk factors that I mentioned. And he was, like the story you told, hard no. I tried to present the data. I tried to tell him why. Um, He had a history. You know, I think these individuals who chose not to vaccinate were really portrayed as a bit crazy, a bit out there, these Confederate flag-waving, nutso people. And, Mm -hmm. and, And while, of course, there's extremism in every group, that is not what I saw in my office. This individual had a family member years ago, nothing to do with COVID vaccine, but was injured by a a different vaccine. And then he himself had been prescribed a medication uh, that was prescribed in the right way and withdrawn in the right way, but unfortunately the guidelines were not right at that time. And it took two years of his life to recover from those drug side effects. So he was wary, understandably so. That was his story. And I had to honor that while also explaining to him that this was a different animal and I really did feel he had risks. 
He still chose not to do it. I saw him months later. He had contracted a pretty uh, bad strain of COVID. He couldn't walk from my front door into my office, barely with, on oxygen, huffing and puffing. Lungs were trashed, um, had a lot of fibrosis. He was never going to live a normal life again, unfortunately. Wow. So again, people have a right to choose. They do with what they do with their life. But the consequences, you know, I don't know... He told me he didn't regret his decision not to vaccinate, but that's a tough call. I, you know, he's still not well. So that was one hand. Um, in the same week, I had the polar opposite. Young, 30-something-year-old mom, three kids at home, uh, had her first shot, went into initial tachycardia, so heart rate, high heart rate, breathing troubles. They rushed her to the ER. ER doctor's response was, you're fine, just go home and run a hot bath. This has nothing to do with the vaccine. She said, okay, maybe I'm just anxious. She was not an anxious person. Went home, started developing a lot of neurologic complications. Uh, was unable to sleep, had a sensation of, uh, people describe with vaccine injury as like a cellular shaking. They've got this internal vibration, this just intensity they can't get rid of. Um, she started having what we call autoimmune inflammatory arthritis, meaning her joints started swelling so bad she couldn't move her wrists anymore, she couldn't pick up her children. Uh, she was pretty damaged and still is. She's better now. She's better now years later, but not 100%. So that one week I got to see both sides, right, of what happens maybe when you don't vaccinate when you should and what can happen from a vaccine injury. It doesn't make things any easier for me. Sorry, Jeff. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there stuff about this particular vaccine and the way that it was generated that is different than most vaccinations um, and, and what we were told about that process? Because I, I was led to believe that, yeah, though it had been accelerated, all the checks and balances were in place, uh, everything that they had done was ab above board and could be fully trusted. I, and that was my line. Mm -hmm. um, from your perspective, do you see it that way? Am I allowed to ask that? Is this? <laughs> I don't know if I like. Um, can you can you speak to that at all? Just from yeah. your own personal perspective. I mean, I, I think we can speak to what we know, which is that. Uh, you know, I like to believe that there's no malicious intent. Hopefully the majority of the time, right? I think that we were in a bind and we needed protection. Pharmaceutical companies did the best they could in a very short amount of time to roll this vaccine out. And it did a good job of stopping certain people from dying. Mm -hmm. I think we have to accept that and mm -hmm. know that that is truth. We have to also accept that there has been some injuries and side effects we weren't aware of, um, of course, until you roll drugs out into a large group of population, you're not going to see some of these rarer side effects, right? There needs to be enough people given the medication for us to see this. And so what we know now is that some corners were maybe cut. Um, Dr. Philip Beckwold, he is a biochemist, molecular biologist down in the States, and he's actually the one, his lab created the saliva test for covid testing. So he was very much involved in trying to help this public crisis. And um, so he's been, he's, he does cancer vaccines is his kind of thing. So he's a very, very incredibly bright doctor with RNA, DNA. And so 
when we created this vaccine, of course, as an mRNA vaccine, the first of its kind to hit the population, at least in, in this large of a group, um, in order to replicate that quickly, when they did the trial run, they were able to do it in a different way because it was just for a small batch of people to trial it out to see if it could get approved, which it was. They quickly realized that you can't replicate that many doses for the entire world that quickly, and they needed to find a new way. So what they did was they put it in a vector, and that viral vector got dumped into a bacteria. That bacteria did a PCR reaction to dump out this mRNA. Okay, which is fine, except for that that DNA that read the code was still in the end product of what went out to all of us. And unfortunately, they knew it. They tried to chop up this DNA, but they didn't remove it. Now, I can't say this is a concern. We don't know yet, right? We're still trying to figure it out. But what we do know, Health Canada has admitted, or I shouldn't say admitted, has confirmed that there's DNA in this vaccine that's vector coded, which means it can move in and out of our DNA which means maybe that's how some people, again, rare, but some people have these symptoms, as you described, where their neurologic system tanks, cancer blows up, they die, um, things we wouldn't expect. Is it possible, and again, we don't know, but is it possible that some of this vector DNA is creating havoc? So there's still a lot we don't know. And so I think for us to be hard on yes or no. We're still not in a clear area of doing that, except to say certain people do reduce their risk of death. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Sorry. I know. It's tough. <laughs> it's tough. You know what? I, I just want to stop for a second, and because I'm sure if there's people here that you have a very defined opinion on this matter, perhaps even the way I'm asking these questions is pissing you off right now. <laughs> And you're probably in your mind going, why don't you hit her with this question or this question? Chill the frick out. <laughs> this is part of being, you know, like t- to get in into these conversations and being able to explore perhaps on the other side rather than just trying to confirm our own biases, allowing them th- th- this conversation to go in a number of different ways. I, I know... Eight months ago, no, longer, a year ago, I wouldn't have asked questions like this. I would have tried. So, yeah. Let's talk big pharma, because this was another big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the first one my mom... <laughs> shit, sorry, mom. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Mom. (laughs) Yeah, she said... (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) She said, uh, I don't trust Big Pharma. And I said, Mom, we don't have much of a choice. They're they're cranking out all this help. And I remember the first conversation, I was pretty indignant. But over the, the last little while, I've been watching Netflix and... HBO Max documentaries, one too many out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How many have watched any of these documentaries on Painkiller, uh, a bunch of the different stuff that's come out that has made, uh, has been very disturbing for me. Mm-hmm. And, and that's rocked me because I'm going, man, the biggest AstraZeneca, Pfizer, 
Moderna, they've all paid out billions of dollars in settlements for what they would call irresponsible marketing, not revealing all the facts about different products. So I'm going, now I'm like, (laughs) are you, does does that make you nervous at all? Or is, um, yeah, like now I'm kind of backtracking a little bit on that and I'm going, well, maybe mom had a point there. Thoughts on any of that? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky, right? I think any time we have a big, powerful, multi-billion, trillion-dollar industry, there is room, unfortunately, for ego, for power, for manipulation, and certainly... Greed. Yeah, greed, absolutely. We've seen it in the research, right? Research. We've seen data been pushed a certain way, certain groups omitted, right? You see that all the time. Oh, this this group didn't get the results we're looking for. Oh, they're just excluded from the study now. Everybody else is fine. The drug works. So unfortunately, yes. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, we should not listen to a doc in the ER if we're in trouble, right? right. This means we still have to understand drugs do do good. Um, However, can there be deceit within these companies? I mean, the, the settlements uh, and the allegations would say yes. Yeah, like, the more I wrestle with some of this stuff, the more it changes the tone of my conversation with my mom. That's the truth. The more I'm kind of looking at her going... Yeah, yeah, there's, there's some tricky stuff there. Like, how do we, how do you coach people now with knowing all you know? Like, I, I, I don't even know a little bit, but with all you know, people are coming in. Are there some tactics that you're using, some general principles that you're helping them make decisions with these major complications? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to come to the data, um, be very wary of what the media says. I don't think the media did the best job. Uh, They scared people so bad. Uh, You know, people that had a little bit of anxiety went through the roof through this. Do you talk to them about their consumption of media? Yes, and what do you tell them? Don't watch it. <laughs> really? Really? Less information is better? Often I think yes. I mean, who feels good after they watch the news? Uh, hey, I'm, I'm with you. Like, and, and what news do you listen to? Well, that's the thing. I mean, and what do you say? You get misinformed or non-informed. I mean, they're not either great options, but the clickbait and the sensationalization and the depiction of certain groups in extreme forms doesn't help us talk to one another. Like We need to be able to have these conversations. And even if we don't do the same thing for ourselves, it doesn't mean we can't respect that opinion. Mm-hmm. It might be, it's going to be different for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I know we haven't liked that necessarily. But for me, it's about, you know, when people come in, you know, it's a different conversation. Again, high-risk group. And that doesn't necessarily equal age. And I know that often gets, you know, everybody over 70 should. And, and I would say the data does not support that. Evidence-based medicine says 
the, the risk factors are the ones I described, right? So blood pressure, uh, obesity, diabetes, dementia, cardiac risk factors, essentially. That's, those are the main ones. There's others, but those are the main ones. When people come and ask me about their kids, do you vaccinate your kids? You know, I share the story. Like, look, we don't know. There's some DNA in this. Does this cause a problem for your child in 20 years? I don't know. Um, does your kid have risk factors, right? Some kids struggle with these conditions as well. We need to look at that. Um, so these are, these are tricky things to talk about. I think, again, children are not affected by this disease, really. Yes, there's some long haulers, and I get the exception, but we need to talk about, you know, the general. So these are different conversations depending on the person, and I think that's what medicine should be. And unfortunately, during the pandemic, that stopped. It was just, this is the answer for everybody, period. And there is very few things, if any, in medicine where that's the case. For the, for the people here in this room that perhaps are like me, we're, we're still leaning into relationships that have perhaps been damaged. Mm. There's some carnage there, scar tissue from times throughout the pandemic that have left it tender. It's yeah. maybe the elephant that no one wants to cross. Can you close with maybe a little bit of advice in terms of what you would challenge people, how to have conversations around this stuff that might might lead to better outcomes? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting timing when you first reached out to me weeks ago to talk about this. That same day I had a patient come in and she said, it is now the two-year anniversary that I have not spoken to my parents over the vaccine. Wow. Two years. Wow. Right? Like, that's not okay. <laughs> this is a personal medical decision between you and your physician, period. We need to figure out how to have these conversations again. So um, I think the things you've been speaking about here are incredible, and that's why I wanted to be part of this. I think it's so, so important. And I just wanted to add that this, Dr. Erica Goodwin is a psychiatrist, Harvard-trained psychiatrist, who I've done some courses with, and she defines an essential better life. So we know like the Maslow triangle of you know, basic life needs, okay? But sort of above that is to be valued, to be loved, and to be seen. And so that same patient actually called her and I said, I'm doing the talk this week. Do you have any advice for me of what you would have wanted to hear from your family when they cut you off and cut you out of their life? And she said, you know, she's an educated woman. She's got a PhD. She's, you know, very educated. And she said, I just wanted them to hear my story, my side of it, not the media. I just wanted my parents to, to val validate that for me and my health conditions, it was not the right decision to get this vaccine and that it didn't put them at risk. So for her, it was just being heard. It wasn't even about maybe the medical, it was just being heard. So I guess what I hope everybody can hear is that this drug, this vaccine, it did everything on the end of the spectrum. It absolutely saved some people's lives. It absolutely reduced severity of disease for some people. It unfortunately did nothing, good or bad, for other people. It caused some major harm for people, and it killed some people. Same intervention. So maybe if we can soften in that there's a lot here and some personal choices and personal health information that does need to be taken into consideration for every individual choosing to vaccinate or not, I hope maybe that can soften and help with healing some of these relationships that were so wounded. Mm, oh, that's wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I don't know uh, how many conversations are left un, unhad yet 
represented within this room. But our hope is that as we just talk about some of the complications to this thing, the more than anything, just the level of certainty that we speak with, the level of I know what's right, not just for me, but for others, perhaps that level of certainty would just drop a little. And perhaps as we re-engage, maybe there, it's the same, there's the same story in here of someone who hasn't spoken with someone since there was an argument or since there was a fight. Perhaps you would get on the phone again. Perhaps you would reach out through a text or an email. And maybe, maybe the repair that goes down just sounds a lot less definitive. Perhaps there would be a willingness to just step in and say, can you tell me how you are? And can we go back and can we maybe start over? I don't know. I don't know if that, if you'd be willing to, if that is your story, but I hope, you know, I'd love to believe that the pandemic is fully in our rearview mirror. But there's a chance that we could be revisiting something in the coming months or years. And I would hope that as a as a community, we'll be better and stronger and more equipped to be able to have these conversations, difficult ones, in the middle of this, where love and respect and dig, all that stuff would be in play. So anyways, that's our hope. Nina, thank you for joining us today and thank sharing you your pr- interesting perspectives. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, really appreciated it. All right, that's it. We went, we went long. Next week, we're, uh, we're talking about MAID. Medical assistance in dying. Hey, isn't this fun? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I tell you, if we we can have conversations in the midst of these kind of hot button, you know, that are are loving and that are embracing, man, spirituality can kick some ass and change the world. That's what we believe. So join us next week, will you? Have a great week, everyone. We'll see you next week.